HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com chef today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Taki Kotema, a food writer, the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, and izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my crew guests. My guest today is Akira Shimizu, who is the Associate Professor of History at the Wilkes University, and his focus has been our favorite topic, food. And Professor Shimizu recently published an intriguing book titled Specialty Food, Market Culture, and Daily Life in Early Modern Japan, regulating the, the, regulating the market in Edo, 1780-1870. And the book features a very unique period of Japanese history, the Edo era, was a more peaceful time than ever, thanks to the strong leadership of the shoguns. But because of the strong shoguns, the food supply system was highly regulated and manipulated back, back then. So Professor Shimizu unfolds how the system unfairly worked for small players and how they tried to challenge it with fascinating examples. So today we'll discuss why Professor Shimizu got into Japanese food history, how the shoguns managed to eat the best of the best food in the market, how privileged merchants enjoyed the suffer and also suffered their status at the same time, and how ordinary citizens bravely challenged the system, and lessons we can learn from the Edo period, and much, much more. But before we start, 
Japanese is available on the Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We really appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start a conversation with Professor Akira Shimizu. Hello, Professor. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me over today. So, yeah, this is a very exciting book. Usually I never read academic um, book or anything, <laughs> but this one is fascinating. So congratulations. Thank you. So first of all, to get to know you, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Okay, uh, I was born and raised in a small town called Kakogawa in Japan, uh, which is located about 60 miles west of Kobe. And the city was uh, back then, uh, early 1970s and 19, uh, 1980s, one of the heavy industrial centers that contributed to Japan's so-called post-war recovery. Uh, my father was an engineer for Kawasaki Heavy Industry, and he was traveling all over Japan all the time. And so uh, first, I started experiencing different kinds of food from his souvenirs. And then the city of Kakogawa is uh, pretty accessible to fishing communities along Seto Inland Sea and farming areas uh, in northern part of Japan. And if you are familiar with Japanese beef, it's a home, home of Tajima beef. And then for my region, it is said that many candidate cattle for Kobe beef are raised. And so, I mean, in a way, I am a typical Showa generation. <laughs> and, you know, from school lunch, I was eating, for example, quail meat uh, every once in a while. And for quick, uh, quick feeling when I was kid, um, I was eating takoyaki and okonomiyaki just for a quick bite. <laughs> and uh, also probably typical uh, from my hometown area in my generation, uh, I don't remember eating much tuna until I entered college in Kobe. And so I think uh, Primary, I mean, I talk a lot about regional specialty food in my book, but uh, my real experience with regional specialty foods came from my experience as a long-distance haul truck driver for two years after I graduated from college in Japan. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Right. Um, yeah, but, but you know, uh, Hyogo is really close to Kyoto as well, and uh, you mentioned yeah. Tajima beef. Basically, mm -hmm. it's uh, one of the Wagyu beef, um, right. you know, fried brands. So, and also, I mean, Showa period. Uh, we, I think, now in Weiwa, uh, you know, mm -hmm. when the, the emperor changes in Japan, they change the name of Japanese calendar's name. So Showa, we formally go back now, and that was a growth period, like you said, after World War II. And a lot of things came into Japan, and a lot of new products was born, and it's a very busy, uh, rich um, period in terms of culture as well as food. So it's funny that you are eating oil meat sometimes, which I heard. <laughs> but well, originally, um, the General MacArthur uh, mm. advocated to serve oil meat because Japan was so poor and the school kids needed the more protein and oil was available in a poor situation of the economy. Right, so right. yeah, it's a, it's a very contentious topic right now, <laughs> but there is a reason that 
you had to eat that. So, right. <laughs> right. Interesting. So maybe that was, uh, you were planted with all those interesting <laughs> food back then already. Right. So, and after you graduated from high school in Japan, you went to study history at the University of Illinois, uh, Grand Champagne. So why did you decide to go to a university in the U.S. and what, why history? Okay, so actually I have a, a college degree from Japanese university, actually. And so I attended Konan University in Kobe for four years. And my major was, I think the American equivalent is pre-law. But I was uh, rather interested in music. So I became truck driver and, just, and then saved some money and then came to the U.S. And the first destination was actually Memphis, Tennessee. And mm. for a couple of years, I played the guitar, uh, blues guitar, uh, in a band and traveling in the South. <laughs> and, but... For some reason, I started losing my interest in playing music. And so, of course, in Memphis, I experienced a lot of good so-called soul food, right? <laughs> and uh, there's some good fried chicken places I still have a dream of. <laughs> and then, uh, in the meantime, I started hearing from my friends saying, oh, Akira, which Japanese restaurant is the best in Memphis? or uh, you know, does this Japanese restaurant have a Japanese chef? And as if I'm the, as if I was the authority of authenticity. So I started questioning about this whole idea of national cuisine, like Japanese cuisine, French cuisine, and, and, and you know, who has this idea and authority to decide it is this authentic cuisine, right? And then I met a history professor from the University of Memphis. And so I decided to attend the University of Memphis and where I started, I mean, I have been interested in history in general, but probably uh, like many other people, my interest was in history of so-called big men and big events, but uh, uh, a few year experience in University of Memphis was really eye-opening and started um, making me think that there's a, a lot of different possibility to think about the past. And so I applied for applied to graduate school at University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. And I had a fortune to work with Professor Ron Toby. And he's the authority of Tokugawa history in the US. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So, well, that's really, I never expected this path from music to this Tokugawa <laughs> <laughs> shogun, right? I was going to talk about shogun, but Tokugawa was really yeah, sure. the family of um, shogun family. So, yeah, we're going to mm. get into that in a moment. But um, so now, now you are the associate professor of history at Wilkes University. So how do you choose your career in teaching and what do you teach there? So my... Uh... I teach a lot of different courses at Wilkes University, and Wilkes University is a very, uh, you know, teaching-oriented uh, school, and where I have been having a lot of fortunes to interact with great students. And so, I teach undergraduate general education, uh, global history, 
and then specialized seminars in Japanese history, East Asian history. Uh, occasionally, I teach global food history and other cultural histories. Mm, wow, you cover a lot of stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> right, and then, but among them, you just you know, recently published an intriguing book titled Specialty Food, Market Culture, and Daily Life in Early Modern Japan, Regulating and Deregulating the Market in Edo, 1780 to 1870. So, what is the theme of this book? Well, I have found it pretty challenging to put the answer in one sentence. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, uh, it's about specialty food, but uh, I'm interested in the role and symbolic meaning of specialty food, especially in connection to everyday life of people. And so uh, I talk about people in general, right? And peasants, fishermen, fisherfolks, and wholesalers, uh, retail sellers, and samurai officials. And they are involved in different steps and aspects of, for example, production, advertisement, sale, consumption, and imagination by reading books. So, actually, my advisor Ron Tully called it uh, calls my book kind of multimedia approach to <laughs> Japanese history. But yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that's a very good way to put it, and it's kind of multifaceted or multi-angle study of food and food ways in the Tokugawa period, focusing on regional specialty food. Mm, right, so the specialty food is key because that was the selected item, which was right. valuable to the shogun's <laughs> preference. Right. Yeah, right. So, yeah, and so basically uh, I'm interested, I mean, I focus I focus on the daily life and daily conflict, right? And as I will be talking today, talking about today, uh, I talk a lot of a lot about conflict between licensed wholesalers and what is called amateur uh, merchants or shioto, uh, who are not licensed or who whom we don't know where they come from or something like that. So really, I try to dig in deep into the bottom of society through food. Mm, right. So let's just break it down. So you focus on this yeah. Edo period in your book. And mm. again, Edo period, uh, that was from, um, there is so many different theories about mm. this, but the general age 1602 to 1867 mm. um, was to be more peaceful era in Japanese mm. history than ever before, because before that, everybody's fighting for the realm and power, and it's very messy, yes. dangerous, <laughs> crazy time. And But thanks to the peacefulness um, created by shoguns, so commercial and cultural activities thrived, and uh, like the famous Edomai Sushi was born, during the period <laughs> among hungry public. So, so before we get into that detail, so, so who exactly was the shogun and how powerful was he? Well, oh, by, yeah, by the way, yeah, sorry, the, the, by the way, the, there are 15 shoguns during the Edo period, all, right. from, uh, all from the same Tokugawa family. That's mm. crazy, right? Mm. Okay, so, sorry. Yeah, so they are from the Tokugawa family, either main branch or a branch family in today's Wakayama prefecture or Ibaragi prefecture or Aichi prefecture, but uh, basically from uh, the same Tokugawa family. But uh, I think Shogun is already a very, I mean, has been integrated in English vocabulary 
now thanks to this uh, novel, right? Uh, but in historical studies, it is it used to be translated as generalism, right? And so it, shogun is the military leader, and so it doesn't have anything to do with the authority associated with the emperor, right? And the shogun is appointed by the emperor. Right. Uh, in Japanese pro uh, pronunciation, Sei Taishogun. Uh, English translation will be barbarian subjugating general. And uh, the first character, Sei, denotes conquer or subjugate. E, second character, is barbarian. Right? And Taishogun is great general. Right? And the first example comes from the late 8th century when the emperor appointed. Uh, Otomo no Otomaro, uh, in order to subjugate barbarian in today's uh, Tohoku. But even before him, in different titles, uh, shogun wa, shoguns were appointed to uh, subjugate barbarians in south, today's Kyushu. And so this E, second character E, Sei Taishogun E, it comes from, I think, uh, Chinese worldview, right? Chinese worldview, you see the emperor at the center of the world, and the emperor is surrounded by his servants. And outside emperor's realm, there are tributaries. And outside the tributaries, there are barbarians. And there's four Chinese characters to denote barbarians in each direction, north, south, west, and east. And, but anyway, uh, in Japanese history, there are three phases where the shogun governed Japan. First, Kamakura, second, Muromachi, then uh, third, Tokugawa, in a military government called Bakufu. And so the important thing is they are all appointed by the emperor. And so they're military leader and at the same time, political leader. And uh, as you just said, uh, Tokugawa shogunate was the most stable period which lasted for 250 years without any interruption. Mm, right. So that's really, to me, it's kind of confusing and fascinating is that, so, <laughs> you know, we have like the current emperor is uh, 126 mm. emperor, but oh, yeah. then even the shoguns got so powerful, they could just mm. discriminate, like, you no, know, the, the uh, destroy whole emperor family, but they didn't mm. because they are, at the beginning, they're officially unnamed, like assigned mm. as that, you know, conqueror of the North, which mm. is like a wild mm. west of Japan. So um, that didn't happen. They, the emperor was still an emperor. I think it's my imagination is that, I don't know who knows, but uh, the first emperor came before, I think 660 BC or something really long time ago. <laughs> and it was like the god turned to the emperor, mm. the first emperor. So somehow maybe shoguns are afraid not to make it the <laughs> god angry or something like that. But it's it's fascinating. It's like all those strong shoguns never tried to kill emperors. So, right. so it's kind of one of the frequently asked questions in Japanese history. Right? Why, did, why did the shogunate try to destroy the imperial family? And so there's no definite answer and probably shogunate wanted to use imperial authority to govern Japan, right? And they needed the emperor to appoint them as shogun or something mm. like that. But, uh, and during the Tokugawa period, uh, 
in many different parts of Japan up reserved for the imperial family so that the imperial family could get stable income right so it's not necessarily kind of antagonistic relationship between Kyoto imperial family and Edo shogunate family so it's right. one so of the, the I, mysteries mm. yeah. right so, so yeah it's interesting so they the shoguns probably used the imperial uh, kind of face power um, mm -hmm. as a framework for tax money or whatever it's convenient. Right, right. <laughs> right. interesting. Okay, so, uh, right. so how was the Japanese society structured under the strong shoguns back then? Because it sounds like they really mm -hmm. are, you know, stable, mm -hmm. powerful, and everybody, mm -hmm. the whole country was kind of, kind of um, mm -hmm. led, managed by shoguns. So, mm -hmm. So this is another challenging question because there's so many ways to talk about this, right? And it's <laughs> a very great opportunity for me to review what I have learned as a basic of Tokugawa history. But uh, so let's start from police. Right? And probably uh, many listeners are familiar with the Japanese Jidaigeki historical films and dramas, and they have seen. Uh, Tokugawa police officers, samurai with two swords, right? Mm, like a Mifune, Mifune movie. <laughs> right, Mifune right. movie, and Mifune plays a lot of so-called uh, marginal people. Because if you observe him very carefully, his outlook as his role, he has hair in his forehead. Mm. And he doesn't do proper top knot. Right. right. That's uh, funny. Yeah, that weird, weird hairstyle was the symbolic of yeah. being upper yeah. class somewhere. Yeah. Right. Uh, this, is, this is going to be another topic, so I'm just going to move on. So, the uh, uh, so city of Edo was administered by magistrate or commissioner. Uh, in Japanese, it's called Bugyo Sho. Minamiwachi Bugyo, Southern City. Magistrate and Northern City Magistrate, Kitabu Yosho, and they took a monthly turn to administer a lot of different aspects of people's life in Yedo, but uh, the staff member, the number of staff member, members was considerably small. And Yoriki, the equivalent to police slash detective, each of South and North Magistrate only had. 25 staff members, officers. And then below them, there are people called Doshin. Uh, it's kind of regular police officers and only 100 in each office. So, but on the other hand, uh, again, many listeners may be familiar with a lot of, you know, crimes and murders and arsenals and blah, blah, blah in Tokugawa period, but I mean, from those uh, historical dramas and films. Uh, but basically, everyday affairs were handled by townspeople. Right? So the entire city was actually administered by Machidoshiori and town elders, the three hereditary families, they took annual charge to do this. And they are even allowed to carry sword. And they are even allowed to see the showroom in audience for the New Year's. 
And the entire city was divided into more than 250 small units called Cho, and each headed by Cho Namushi, and town's leader. And so this is uh, what is called Tokugawa hands-free administration. And so magistrate would issue documents such as edicts, notice, and blah, blah, blah. And they are relayed through uh, town elders. And then uh, chief of each uh, administrative unit called Cho. And Cho Nanushi, uh, the chief of each administrative unit, took charge of uh, a lot of different things. Right? And many civil, small, minor civil disputes were handled by them. And Tokugawa didn't even touch it. Like, unlike today, where people could report all those kind of cases to police. Right? Mm. And so, in a way, it was very effective. Right? And even Chonamushi and neighborhood chief took charge of managing daily markets <laughs> for uh, townspeople. Mm, right. So basically, it's a really well structured and some sort mm. of autonomous system. And right. then people knows exactly what's happening. So it's a mm. closely watched, but kind of um, mm. closely, um, broadly managed. Right. So, you know, so things happening. And and then uh, there is, um, and of course, it's just that people are kind of like some, you know, discriminated, discriminated mm. uh, classes. One is, um, of course, farmers as the cheapest, the poorest people. And mm. then uh, these general like merchants and more commercial people. And on top of it, there's a sunrise um, mm. and some reasons to sunrise there are different right. grades, like you said. So... Mm. And some professionals like doctors and stuff. So it's right. pretty much a class-oriented society. And uh, mm. if you're poor, it's hard. And then that's why people are craving for some power, like licensing from the uh -huh, government, uh -huh. right? Mm. And then and it was often given by the shogun's government mm. called Baku. And then mm. uh, and also I think importantly, um, the concept of Jokamachi. Jokamachi is, um, you know, the area surrounding uh, the castle where the shogun mm. lives. And then that Edo castle is now the emperor's house in Tokyo. You can go, you can go inside, but you can run around <laughs> <laughs> from the moat. You can see yeah. um, swan and uh, fish, whatever. So, yeah. so that's the system. Like, you know, everything surrounding the shogun's um, mm. power and physically mm. it's surrounding city, right? right? That's, the, that's Edo and now it's, mm. it's called Tokyo. So that's mm. the setup. And then, um, so how did the food supply system work in the Edo period? Mm. And the mm. shogun's like, you know, it's kind of like a general concept of what you cover, but paint mm. a picture of how the market was structured and who was driving the market. Mm. Okay, so throughout the research, I found that it was very well organized, uh, even connecting Edo and supply line connecting Edo and Osaka and distant places. But uh, when it comes to food right, and vegetables and seafood, uh, there's a limitation because of transportation and refrigeration. So a lot of things came from nearby communities. And so 
seafood and the vegetables were transported to market. And there are three major uh, daily produce market, one in Kanda, uh, the biggest one, and the oldest one being uh, Senju, northern part of Edo, uh, today's Adachi world. And the other one uh, in, it's called uh, Komagome, uh, it is uh, Kitaku, and Kita world today. And then fish market, and probably many uh, listeners are familiar with this expression, Nihonbashi, and today's Shuo world. And the market lasted until 1923, and then it was moved to Tsukiji. Right? Then, um, so basically, all food stuff was supposed to be transported through so-called official channel, connecting fishing and farming communities to these markets. And then in markets, there are bakufu officials attending and overseeing the fair trade and uh, you know, legal transactions. And then those of, uh, bakufu officials were in charge of securing certain amount to be procured for Edo Castle. And Meaning then- yeah, for shoguns, right? Um, right. And then I, I don't know how many people work for the castle, but I heard it's really hard to keep um, and secure the good mm. amount of food, high quality food for mm. shoguns and people working for him. Right. In so mm, so uh, there's not much information left for us to decipher what the shogun actually ate. <laughs> right? And you know, we know that, for example, the eighth shogun, uh, Tokugawa Yoshimune, was very eager to turn the clock back to the era of simplicity, right? So he encouraged officials, and he himself demonstrated very simple food uh, dietary life. And, but, uh, you know, one thing we know is that uh, from the shogun's kitchen, it took a meal, a couple of hours to get to shogun's mouth because there are a lot of officials involved in between to sample right, for poison right. or adaptation or anything. And so, yeah, so, uh, so there's official channels connecting uh, fishing and farming communities to Edo markets. And, uh, you know, one of the interests uh, I had for my research, I mean, turned into this book is that to see how uh, unlicensed, unregistered, unauthorized merchants could interfere, intervene, in this, I mean, disrupt this commercial channel. Right? Uh, so uh, for those markets, uh, officials would select or wholesalers were responsible to keep the best quality of required items for the showroom, I mean, the Edo Castle, and, but incredibly low prices. And usually, uh, the prices uh, the buck would pay for this licensed wholesaler would be one fifth of uh, overall market prices. So it's mm. huge discount. <laughs> right. So, but why did they want to do that still? So this is uh, this brings up this whole idea of goyo showing, right? And it's an honorable service. So this service, they can use this 
サインコール御用、ツーキャラクター、オノラブルサービス、It's, uh, it is going to be, it became the sign of、uh, high quality service and high quality products they sell.So they could have good marketing for, you know, commoners and other ordinary consumers. Mm. Right. So they get a discount for,、mm. they give discount to the shogun's、uh, account, but then、mm. they get some kind of name value because, you know,、uh, you, you have a quality guaranteed、mm. by shogun.、Right. And what I heard is because of that brand name,、um, some became famous family like Mitsui. Or,、uh-huh. you know,、mm-hmm. like current modern powerful family, it still goes,、right. runs now. But、mm-hmm. a lot of people disappeared because they financially they couldn't support the business. Right. Right.、Mm-hmm. right. So, and I, I also heard that some of the, the、uh, Goyo Shonin、um, mm-hmm. was allowed to carry,、um, you know, sword like the upper level samurai,、mm-hmm. or you are given some. You know, rice field or place、mm-hmm. to live or something like that. So、mm-hmm. that's kind of balanced, but you have to really do both, right? Give discount right, right. and get the、mm-hmm. name brand. And then how、mm-hmm. can you survive? So that's your choice, kind of.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting.、Uh, you know,、mm-hmm. like、um, this whole thing sounds like the, you, you explained how the market、mm-hmm. was set up. But、mm-hmm. what I heard is that when Shogun, the Tokugawa became Shogun, he brought in some. Um, superior、uh, fish merchants from、mm-hmm. Osaka, which、uh, was the main mecca of that previous、um, era's powerful、mm-hmm. <laughs> people. And then, so that was the beginning of that market、mm-hmm. in Edo, or now、mm-hmm. Tokyo. So, it seems to be very important back、mm-hmm. then already. Right. But、um, the whole market system effectively was only made for shoguns. They don't try to maintain a fair price, right? It's more like more selfish way to operate so that they can control everything, <laughs> the supply. <laughs> yeah, but、uh, I, have, I haven't seen any historical documents about pricing, right?、Uh, there are a lot of study done, studies done in the history of France, ancient regime,、uh, in French society before the French Revolution, about,、uh, for example, Butcher's Association. Or Baker's Association, they're called guilds, right? And they are very organized and very exclusive. And guilds were responsible to maintain fair prices and welfare of their members. But、uh, from the Japanese counterparts, I mean, Edo counterparts, let's be more specific,、uh, I haven't found any comparable documents. So it's very interesting to see how they did pricing.、Right? Mm, right. And I,、uh, by the way, I found、uh, in your book, it was on page 60, so some of the、uh, items that w a s regulated by the shogun. I mean, remember, listeners, this is not now. So it was back then. There are <laughs> valuable items like mushrooms,、uh, 14 items, and arrowheads,、uh, it's 25, sweet potatoes, 75. And dried food has come to like dried fish or dried mushrooms,、uh-huh. I'd imagine. And the yuba, the tofu skin,、mm-hmm. and tofu, wheat bran,、um, lotus roots, yamo、mm-hmm. potatoes, mustards, eggs,、mm-hmm. dried seaweed, <laughs> konyaku, and fruits.、Um, so it's just interesting. I mean, they're、uh-huh. kind of, you can see still 
some uh, uh-huh. gift items of those precious, um, right. carefully made traditional mm-hmm. foods. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's interesting that you set up those things. Yeah, and it has a lot of things to do. Uh, has a lot of things to do with what is called uh, hatsumono and seasons, right? And for example, there's a lot of issues about uh, first bonito in the season, hatsugatsu, mm. and a lot of rich commoners try to disrupt the market and try to get fast, fight for literally they fought for fast bonito in the season, right? So Tokugawa Bakufu, I mean, I think it's kind of part of uh, sumptuary law, right? Try to keep commoners' life simple, uh, not to exceed their own status, right? So, uh, so there's a continuous effort by Tokugawa Bakufu to regulate this food trade in uh, either society and market. Mm. Right, it's kind of maintaining that class mm. system. Mm-hmm. So, right. <laughs> yeah, so other, ex- other examples, for example, uh, from the late 18th century on, uh, Bakufu continuously issued edicts or notice for commoners not to wear, for example, silk gowns, robes, and because it's not for their status, right? And even funnier example is, I think it was from 1840s, uh, the Bakufu arrested a couple of sous chefs mm. because they are found serve extravagant toppings of sushi to commoners. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that was crazy. <laughs> wow. Um, that's really um, represent all those, yeah, the mindset, right? It's uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything in order within... Mm-hmm. Uh, under the scrutiny of the system, a closed right. system like you described earlier. So interesting. All right, so we'll take a break here. And when we come back, we'll dive into how wrong the food supply system was under the shoguns and what ordinary citizens bravely attempted to change it. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. In the heart of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, Lilia combines wood-fired seafood, handcrafted pasta, classic Italian cocktails, and warm hospitality. Since 2016, it's been celebrated as a neighborhood gathering place, bringing the best of Italy to New York City. Lilia is one of over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital front door, 
including their website, gift cards, event management, and more. BentoBox is a marketing and commerce platform built specifically for the hospitality industry. With BentoBox, get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Visit getbento.com chef today to learn more and get your first month free. That's getbento.com chef. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats on Heritage Radio Network, or HRN. I'm your host, Akiko Teyama, and my guest today is Akira Shimizu, who is the Associate Professor of History at the Wilkes University. He recently published an intriguing book titled Specialty Food, Market Culture, and Daily Life in Early Modern Japan, Regulating and Deregulating the Market in Edo, 1780-8070. So, in your book, you describe how non-privileged players in the food market meaning not Goyo Shonin, those uh, mm. you know, licensed people, uh, how they tried to change the existing system uh, later in the Edo period. So could you give us uh, the example of egg merchants? I found it really interesting. So who mm. were they and what did they try to do? So uh, this one of the questions I was asking all the time when I was conducting this research, but I didn't find any historical documents which clearly tell us where they are from and what they did before they started handling eggs and other food items. But uh, these issues uh, started coming to Bakufu's attention from the late 18th century, meaning that it was right after the first major famine called Tenmei Famine. A lot of historical documents from Edo and other local domains uh, records kind of population disintegration, right? And so many peasants gave up their farmland and looked uh, in order to look for better opportunities in cities. So it is possible that a lot of peasants came into Edo and started doing this business. This is one possibility. Actually, Bakufu tried to regulate the number of food businesses, I mean, restaurants and food stalls and storage vendors because it kept increasing and increasing, right? And it may have something to do with this population change, an increase in the number of residents who are not registered right, uh, with their Buddhist temple. And so, again, uh, we don't have clear idea of where, where they come from, but uh, there are issues. Uh, I look at eggs as an example. It's a very, very interesting uh, example. From the late 18th century on, uh, I started seeing the expression egg wholesalers in historical documents, meaning that there's a wholesalers specialized in eggs, only eggs, or probably uh, uh, dried foods in general, but uh, historical documents use uh, egg wholesalers or egg wholesale association. Uh, but they started, uh, Kanda Market started receiving eggs from unauthorized carriers. And they came from unknown, un- unknown origins. Right? And 
So licensed merchants try to do the best to exclude these uh, unlicensed merchants or, or again, amateur merchants. And then uh, actually a very interesting example was found, I mean, I found this very interesting example from Century Market in uh, today's Adachi world. And uh, there seemed to be another uh, wholesale association for eggs, but uh, uh, one day someone found the adulteration of so-called authorized eggs with unauthorized eggs. And then it was claimed that this adulteration would lower the quality of eggs to be procured for Edo Castle. And then as a result, egg wholesalers at the Senju market were suspended from providing services to Castle. So it was really a big disruption, uh, this, uh, you know, disrupting merchants. <laughs> mm, right, and I, I heard it in the end, um, mm. the Bakhu, uh, the government of Shogun, allowed unlicensed egg merchants in the market as long as mm. they would report their activities. Right. So, right, so, but I understand because the farmers that the mm. lowest level of this whole class was already starving. They The eggs were um, luxurious items. They didn't eat it. And mm. then you have to serve it to mm. shoguns, but they, they are starving. There's a famine. So you go to yeah. the city and sell it. That's like a natural thing. But mm. And then historically, the farmers are starving and uh, frustrated. They mm. go crazy. They protest. So they, they mm. have to allow... Um, some of those farmers becoming, uh, you know, able to sell their products because otherwise, right. you know, peace would be disrupted. Right. So, yeah, so it's kind of sounds like a natural um, mm. movement. Yeah, so but, there's continu yeah. continuous efforts by the Bakufu to return these peasants to their original uh, farming communities and villages, right? And Bakufu, uh, for example, Bakufu, one point back would say, oh, we give you money to travel back to your own village and give you money to buy farm equipment, so why don't you go back to your village? And it turned out not very effective at the end, but uh, so yeah. it's a, That's a, mm -hmm. another inner city issue, right? right. There's a um, poor farming area and the city mm -hmm. is born and people mm -hmm. go, go into the city. That's always a global right. movement, <laughs> right? So, and I want to talk about another example, which is um, an example of kelp or kombu mm -hmm. trading. So kelp was already in an essential ingredients in Japanese cuisine like now, mm -hmm. but then in Edo period. And mm -hmm. uh, the vast majority of kelp is harvested in Northern right, in Hokkaido even to this day because of the mm -hmm. climate, like, you know, mm -hmm. the whole, uh, terroir allows the mm. best kelp. So, uh -huh. so could you tell us uh, how kelp was traded during the Edo period and mm. uh, what the problem was? And also, this is just who was Shosuke and what did he do? <laughs> <laughs> this individual Shosuke san. Yeah. Okay, so about Shosuke san, again, we don't know who he was. <laughs> and we don't know who, where he came from, but uh, he was in Edo. But anyway, uh, kelp is very well. In terms of Japanese cuisine, it could be a minor item, but uh, it is necessary for broth, right? And uh, from the ancient times, a dried kelp from southern tip of Hokkaido, area around today's Hakodate, 
was identified the best in quality. Uh, it was occasion, uh, regularly presented to the imperial family as a gift. Uh, it was used uh, for imperial rituals and Shinto rituals. And also, it was an important export item to China during the Tokugawa period through Nagasaki. And there's a lot of uh, cases I identified about kelp smuggling by Chinese merchants and those officials and the merchants from Kagoshima domain. And so, and then uh, kelp was exported to China as well as Okinawa. And back then it was called Ryukyu Kingdom, Independent Kingdom, and paying dual tributes to China and Japan. And so uh, a lot of listeners are familiar with this story. Uh, Okinawa people are known for the long lifespan. And some nutrition specialists and scientists point out that it comes from their consumption of kelp. Right? But uh, kelp does not grow in Okinawa. So I think this is a tradition, I mean, kind of continu continuous thing continuous tradition from the Tokugawa period. But anyway, uh, so going back to Shosuke, uh, so kelp trade uh, and the circulation were very strictly uh, regulated by uh, dried food wholesalers and wholesale association. And it came from, again, uh, the area around today's uh, uh, Hakodate, and it was harvested Hokkaido. by Hakkaido right. and Aborigine called Ainu. And the transportation route was fixed. They, they used uh, Nishimari Koro, and it means uh, those ships depart Hokkaido, and then it sails all the way along the coast facing Eastern Sea or Sea of Japan, all the way to Shimonoseki, western tip of uh, Honshu, mainland Japan, and then turn westward and heading to Osaka through Seto Inland Sea. And then in Osaka, kelp was received by a uh, specific group of wholesalers, and then shipment was arranged and somewhat uh, processed into kind of small shape, uh, small batches and small pieces. Uh, for kind of quick consumption. And then they're shipped to Edo. Uh, so Shosuke said, oh, I can buy, I can directly buy kelp from uh, Hokkaido and transport directly from Matsumae. Matsumae is the domain name, uh, around, uh, name of the domain around today's uh, Hakodate. And he said he would use Eastern sea routes along the Pacific coast. So probably the distance and time will be one third and less cost for shipping. Therefore, he said, I could contribute to Edo economy uh, or finance of residents in, a, uh, uh, residents in Edo because I could sell kelp for much lower prices. Right? And this petition pro instantly provoked uh, dried food wholesalers in Edo. And then, there's a dispute, uh, Shosuke's petition to uh, magistrate, uh, Edo magistrate office, and then uh, wholesalers counter petition to stop Shosuke from doing that. And in the process of this dispute, uh, 
magistrate office inquired into neighborhood chief of uh, this area where Shosuke lived. Uh, and the neighborhood chief said, oh, Shosuke's status is very insignificant and it will be very difficult to track down his birth origin and blah, blah, blah. And so obviously nobody, uh, nobody knew where he came from, but uh, uh, he lived in, uh, he had this resident in a very prospering business district next to uh, Nihonbashi. And so probably he was renting a house from someone. And, but uh, in terms of his status, he was very insignificant. So what I found very interesting is this, this small petition filed by, submitted by Shosuke eventually involved magistrates in Osaka and not only Yedo, but also Osaka and Hakodate and these highest officials in magistrate office, as well as whole uh, group of uh, dried food wholesale association. Right? And so this is really, I mean, well, it has a lot of things to do with the significance of kelp as a food item, but it has a lot of things to do with the significance of kind of, again, uh, upward mobility of commoners, right? Mm, interesting. Yeah, well, actually, though, Chosuke um, did something brave, right? Because people took that longer path, I mean, the route to uh, ship kelp from Hokkaido to, um, you know, the Kyoto area where people buy, and also the southern part of Japan to for export, because... Inside the Japan, Sea of Japan is quieter, mm. right, than the Pacific Ocean. Right. So you could go faster, but it was more dangerous. That's, that's what I heard. People didn't mm. use that route because it's too dangerous mm. sometimes. Mm. So he took a risk, and uh, I think he, he was paid for it in a way. Mm. And in your book, you said he eventually lived in a fairly good area. So probably mm. his strategy worked out, and he was able to financially support himself mm. pretty well. So, yeah, so there's kind of more interesting examples in your book. But uh, through all those different movements to deregulate mm. the food market, mm. Mm. how did the market change overall during the Edo period? So overall, you could say the market was very stable, like Tokugawa society, but uh, there are a lot of changes, right? And especially from uh, the late 18th century, and actually twice late 18th century and during sometime in 1840s, Bakufu tried to open up the market to unli unlicensed merchants. And <laughs> because there are, uh, continuously rising prices in Edo, I mean, inflation, right? And Bakufu did everything to curtail overall prices, but uh, it was not successful. So one way they thought about is, okay, let's open the market and there's more competition so that prices would get lower, right? And, but uh, those associations, wholesale associations ended up maintaining the same structure. Right? And even though uh, some wholesalers, wholesale associations open up membership to kind of wider uh, margin, uh, margin circle. So 
Yes, it did change, but uh, the basic structure did not really change uh, until the end of the Tokugawa period. Uh, there are more and more voice from, again, uh, people from fishing communities and uh, farming communities. This is something I talk about in context to kosher grapes, right? And the particular uh, peasant peasants from two particular villages from Koshu, today's Yamanashi prefecture, they are recognized as the sole producer of Koshu grapes, and Koshu budo. And they, they even threatened wholesalers in Edo saying, oh, if you do not comply with this regulation, we're not gonna ship our grapes anymore, right? <laughs> so as the time went on, I could see that uh, more and more upward mobility from peasants and fishermen and and then more and more kind of strong uh, voice or entitlement to claim their own, the value of their own brand. Mm, right, kind of like a GI, geographical yeah. identification, mm -hmm. like uh, Wagyu or Champagne mm -hmm. or all those things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's interesting that, you know, the government tried to open up uh, the whole system also, the merchants associations try to mm. get more members, but then right. I think, like example, you egg egg merchants um, mm. example, the uh, Goyoshonin merchants decreased from twenty seven to eight. Mm. <laughs> the meaning they they're financially not sustainable, so right. the system probably had to collapse at some point. But it's interesting that small people created little movements and. Right. Um, kind of started to create a lot of earthquakes. Mm. So, yeah, and then what do you think is the biggest lesson that we can learn from this period? So it has something to do with my initial interest in studying history, right? And history, not from big men and big events, right? And by looking at daily interaction between merchants and fishermen and peasants and back for officials, we can see the history, right? And then we ha uh, I have identified in the book kind of incredible, again, upward mobility and voice from these people at the bottom of the society. And so that's that I think uh, it really goes against so-called commonly projected view of feudal society where this group of people at the bottom of society are all passive in obeying orders from the political authority. Mm. So this is something we can learn. <laughs> I right. want to provide. <laughs> mm, kind of. Yeah, it's like uh, history repeats in a way and we right. remember it. We don't right. seem to learn very mm. well <laughs> from the history, but yeah, that's a great reminder. Yeah. So, okay, so what are your plans and dreams? Okay, so uh, I keep this my interest in people's daily life and everyday occurrences uh, from history. And the next project is about sake. <laughs> and I'm from the area uh, next to Kobe, and so I'd like to write the history of Nada Sake. And a lot of uh, popular publications from the second half of the Tokugawa period in Edo introduced Nada Sake as the best sake in the country. Right? So I'm interested in the process 
through which this Nada Sake, Nada brand was born. And another thing I'm interested in, obviously, that a lot of people involved in the process of the birth of another brand, uh, for example, procuring rice right, and brew, uh, brew masters and people who transported sake. But there's a, the vast majority of people involved in this process didn't have any geographical or ancestral connection to Nada. So I'm interested in how this whole idea of Nada regional brand was born out of this process and then came to represent Japanese sake eventually toward the end of that period. This is my next plan. <laughs> right, sounds timely. Uh, there are more <laughs> really good sake breweries opening up in the whole world. So yeah, good yeah, luck in New York. Yes. <laughs> Right. Yeah, well, yeah. And it's just really amazing throughout this country and also the world. So, uh, yeah. And uh, so where can we buy your book, uh, especially food market culture and daily life in early modern Japan, regulating and deregulating the market in Edo, 1780 yeah. uh, to <laughs> 70. Yeah. So it's uh, available from the publisher's website and uh, Lexington Books. And they are also widely available from other bookstores now. Okay, great. Mm. All right. So, but again, you know, this is a very interesting um, book. And I, mm. yeah, I, I learned much from you. From oh, your thank books. you. So, yeah, thank you. So yeah. and, uh, finally, so where can we find your updates and online on social media? Uh, uh, everybody is welcome to follow me on Instagram. And uh, I think you can find me in the same name, Akira Shimiz. And also, uh, my research or teaching, everything will be updated and information uh, from uh, History at Works on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, have a uh, department account on this social media. And, or I welcome uh, personal inquiry and contact uh, through e uh, email and you can find my email address from the homepage of the Division of Global Cultures at Luke's University. Great. All right. And also you can DM from Instagram account too. Right. 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 All right. So thank you so much. That was interesting. And, uh, thank you very much. Well, yeah. Good luck with the new book. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Right. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for short topics or guests, please contact us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokatayama.com. Japan is the weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Anand Spanjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Banyeats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.